But if she should go into labor and we could do the first... I will totally, I will totally unmute then. Right, yeah. because we, it could be our first on-air delivery. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, launch, launch. I'm chipping. You know the little sound bite at the beginning of the episode? <laughs> This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application's performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash newrelic. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This episode is sponsored by JetBrains, makers of RubyMine. If you like having an IDE that provides great inline debugging tools, built-in version control, and intelligent code insight and refactorings, check out RubyMine by going to jetbrains.com slash ruby. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 65 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our podcast, we have David Brady. Good morning. I'm homeopathic David Brady. I'm on one part in 10 billion. Awesome. We also have Josh Susser. Good morning. I'm I'm allopathic Josh. We also have James Edward Gray. You know, I listened to that hiring programmers episode, and not one thing I said ended up in there. I'm sorry. I'm Charles Maxwood from from devchat.tv, and we also have a special guest, and that is Michael Feathers. Hello there. I'm down here in Miami saying hello and being with you guys. Awesome. So for the two people that haven't heard of you, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, Yeah, sure. Um, Been in software development for about 25 years, spent a lot of time consulting, work for Groupon now, wrote a book in 2005 called Working Effectively with Legacy Code, and... um, Spend a lot of time thinking about software problems and helping people solve them. So that's me. Awesome. Woohoo! So this week we're going to be talking about functional versus object-oriented programming, and this was a topic that Josh Josh suggested a while ago, and um, and then Michael also wrote a blog post about it, and so we decided to pull the two ideas together and chat about it. Yeah. To, to be fair, I don't think I so much suggested the topic as ranted about it enough that you guys just figured we should do a topic or do an episode. Yeah. All right. I was so like, how how can we make Josh shut up? I mean, you know. <laughs> I I've, I've, I want to be on record here. I've told you guys that appeasement never works, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, I'm not 100% sure where to start. Do we want to start with the blog post or is there a better place to start at? Sure. Uh, I just reread that post this morning. Michael, can you give us like the 10,000 view of what you said there? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, it's funny because a lot of people have been getting into functional programming over the past, what, five, six years, I guess. It's really, this profile has become raised quite a bit. Um, And the thing is, we know it's all old stuff. Functional has been around for ages. But we've been through this period in the industry where we've been using object orientation for just about everything. And um, a question that I've had for a while is really what... What's the relationship between those two things, and how do we actually decide when to use objects and when to use functions? And um, in that blog post, I made a bit of an argument that essentially when you look at the qualities um, that you try to get when you're working in an object-oriented way and uh, in a functional way, it seems like the natural ordering for them is to basically have functional stuff kind of at the bottom of your architecture, and then object-oriented stuff more at the top. And um, I go through a bit of a, you know, a... an argument about that, and I, you know, in the post, I basically said I don't really feel that this argument is completely right, but it's like a starting point in essence. Um, the core of it really is that um, with functional programming, you have referential transparency, and um, that enables, well, let's see, immutability that enables um, referential transparency and lazy evaluation. And uh, with object orientation, uh, in the message passing style, it enables asynchrony, and so it makes a lot of sense to go and have like coarse grained objects that can send messages among each other. 
and then have their core computational bits be uh, referentially transparent functional things. And so that's pretty much the core of it. So yeah, I know quite where to go from there. <laughs> So what what would that look like, uh, or how would that be different from what we typically use? Because um, I, I guess at the lower levels of our um, objects, we, we have some kind of procedural code, but I guess it's not immutable. Is is that the main difference? or? Yeah, it seems to be. And I, it's funny, because I'm not, I didn't really like outline this as like a prescription, like saying this is the way things should be, but it does feel in a way like this is the way kind of things kind of are in a sense. Um, I guess I can backtrack for a second. Um, in the blog post, I kind of... Uh, used Alan Kay's definition of object orientation, which is that object orientation is essentially something like a metaphor for biology, in essence. Um, you can imagine that in any biological system, you have cells, for instance, and they able, they're able to go and communicate by sending messages back and forth to each other. And uh, that's the, the core idea that Alan Kay tried to get across when he was describing object orientation early on. And um, what I was kind of saying is that essentially we use that same message passing style in object orientation, but the thing that's really key and different is that when we make use objects in like C++ or Smalltalk or Ruby, um, they tend to be synchronous, synchronous calls, right? In a biological system, when you send messages, it's asynchronous. You send a chemical expression to another cell and you're not blocked. You can just go ahead and do whatever you want to do, right? Um, the cell can basically continue its own processing and stuff along those lines. And that's like the ultimate in decoupling, really. And that's really what, to me, object orientation is about. It's just totally decoupling separate things. Um, the thing I'm kind of noticing is that in our industry now, essentially, we tend to have that sort of thing already, but we don't really call those bigger things objects. Um, you know, quite often you see message buses and all sorts of things like that in the main workflows of business, businesses. And to me, that's the object stuff in a way. It's kind of like we, we send messages, and that's a way of decoupling things among different architectural components. And it's like, yeah, the lower level stuff, you know, why not make it functional? It tends to be a, a nice paradigm for uh, doing heavy computational lifting. So uh, I know I realize I've, been, I've rambled a little bit, but it's like it feels to me more like this is an observation more than a prescription in a way. So it's interesting to me that you chose to call the objects by their asynchronous nature because it's kind of like you said that I, I, I don't think we tend to use them that way as much, you know? Yeah. And, and I agree with you that, that you're right that it's totally about I mean, if you're going to do tell, don't ask, you know, especially for something like a parser, then, you know, ideally you need to pass it in chunks of data and it needs to call you back whenever it's parsed a significant amount that it knows what it has, right? Yeah, well, call you back or tell somebody else about it. Right, yeah. right, yeah, pass the message along, right. Mm -hmm. um, but it seems to me that, that what's kind of hot in functional programming uh, in recent years is like actors and stuff, which is, seems to be how they get their asynchronous Cs. So. Which, which is amusing because actors are really an object-oriented technology. Yeah, I was about to point out the actor pattern is an OO thing. Yep. And it's funny because you know, a number of people who read the blog basically said to me, it's like, well, hey, Mike, you're really talking about actors. So I'm kind of like, yeah, you know, you're right. Um, but it's, I, I guess what I was trying to do is like make an argument from like, What's the core thing that each of these technologies is supposed to get us, right? Mm -hmm. And um, with object orientation, the notion has been kind of like decoupling and encapsulation. Mm -hmm. And when you carry that thought as far forward as you can go, you end up with something which is kind of cell-like in biology. And that's very much um, akin to the actor style of programming. Mm -hmm. uh, well, the, yeah, well, actor came from the, the very early days of small talk yeah. where, where uh, you know, Alan Kay went to MIT and showed it off. And who was it? Was it? Was I forget it, the guy's name. C.A. Hoare. Um, 
who uh, who saw the the you know small talk seventy two and said oh hey this is cool and one often did um, actor based on that mm-hmm. so so can you guys clarify really quickly I know it's a rather simple concept but clarify what an actor is because when I think of actor and programming I'm thinking of some guy uh, getting drunk and wrapping his uh, program around <laughs> a telephone pole so. <laughs> Nice. Okay, well, okay. An actor is basically an object with its own thread of execution, and you communicate with it using asynchronous messages primarily. So, or, or its know. own process or its own machine. Yeah. Sure. sure. Yeah, but it, yeah, it, it, it's in, independent uh, th- you know, thread of execution, and you send it messages, and it has something like a, an inbox or a mailbox that accumulates those messages, and then it just processes them. So it, it's very much like a web server. But you know, at a different level of scale, it's like yeah. having a team in India for your programming. <laughs> I, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, those those actors make Bollywood movies. Oh, yeah. right, right. And there's a lot more dancing <laughs> and, <laughs> and singing. Yep. Yeah, so, so, so the the actor model as it as it's evolved into is actually probably more like the original concept of objects than modern object oriented languages. Yeah, I kind of look at it as basically a lot of the synchronous stuff that we do in programming is just really, um, it's an artifact of our uh, computational um, environment, you know, that mm-hmm. <laughs> typically we were working on single processors and that was just the, the easy default. Yeah. So. Well, it's, you know, when, you're, when you're building your language as a virtual machine, you can, you can emulate anything you want and the, you know, the small talk virtual machine it, it's multi-threaded. You can have uh, you know, objects. You could build something like actors in it fairly easily. But the the you know ninety nine percent of what you're doing there is synchronous calls. So it's optimized to support that really well. Yeah, it was the path of least resistance, really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Plus, so, there, plus there's you know I mean okay 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 so, so let let's stop dancing around it. Let's talk about functional versus object. I think the actor model is interesting. To, uh, uh, Michael, your blog post about like. Uh, you know, tell above, ask below. That that I think. Uh, you know, I've I've said this. I think Avdi said this. Is you know that seems to be the a very comfortable way to address programming systems at the scale that a lot of us operate. Yeah, that, you know, it's, it's like Berlin's pretty much designed that way, also. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and and I and uh, you know my uh, my uh, sort sort of snarky spin on that is that. Uh, that's a great way to make effective use of the functional paradigm because anytime you get bigger than a method of an object, it becomes a little too crazy to use. So, if, can you explain more about that? Well, I, you know, I think that, that one of the things that object-oriented programming is great at is modeling large systems. Yeah, it, you know, it's it's great at putting boundaries around pieces of code. And then you can define what the, what that looks like from the outside, mm-hmm. and you know you can do that recursively at any level of the system. But the 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 uniformity that you get by making everything objects and by uh, having each object have its own API to talk to it, it and patterns for structuring it, it I think it ends up. You know, we've seen big systems built in an object-oriented fashion that work yeah. really well, and. You know, certainly most programmers can reason about systems like that much better than they can reason about very large functional systems. So, yeah. I, so, so I think tough. that it's, no, it's very yeah, different because yeah. I haven't really seen very large functional systems, and I keep wondering what they look like, and I haven't really seen it. But it's well, a very funny thing yeah. about them because uh, I, I tend to have the same feeling, but I can't really pull back and say, "Well, that's based on something I've seen." And oh, I, I can. 
I can tell you what a large functional system looks like. Oh, please. Emacs. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> I'm kind of kidding there, but oh, okay. uh, but no, still, and and even it's kind of interesting in Emacs because they almost go with their modules and stuff like that. They almost kind of get toward you know object oriented kind of segregation. You know, it's mm -hmm. not, but but yeah, it, I, I, from very big C systems I've seen, there is kind of like a quasi you know object orientation and kind of you know embeds itself in large C systems too, you know? Just the basics of modularity and stuff along those lines and state management. Right, but, but fu functional stuff is, uh, is really lovely for dealing with algorithmic things. Yeah. And, and, and you know, at a mathematical foundation, it, it has a lot of strengths there. So I think that the division of using uh, functional style within methods to uh, structure your algorithms, uh, I think that works really well in a lot of cases. But once you get outside of an object, it's you know, the the ability to handle complexity. I think breaks down, which um, is is sort of funny given that that's uh, you know exactly the opposite of what Rich Hickey was talking about at his Rails now or his RailsConf keynote. Now, why, why is that? Why is that? I mean, if if I can if I can break an object down into smaller objects and smaller objects, and I can do that ad infinitum, how come I can't compose functions up into functions up into functions? And have a very high-level function that really only does, you know, it, it, it's a very small expression because it's shelling out to, or shelling out, it's, it's, you know, calling down into some other functions. Why do we not see these scaling up very high? Well, well if you if you built your software like that, it would probably be fine. But mm -hmm. the, the the problem is the data, and and even in even in Rich's talk, he was. He kept talking about, oh, yeah, we just build these large data structures, which are, you know, it's it's their equivalent of the God object pattern. Mm -hmm. Where you say, okay, great, yeah, we want to have all these functions that we can reason about using the techniques of functional programming, and we want them to, you know, be, uh, you know, composable and lazy evaluation, and all that. So, so you take all of the data complexity and you put it in some big hash in the sky, and mm -hmm. that's your shared state, and it's mutable, and and, and you've sort of drawn a box around that and said, okay, this is where all of the complexity of the system lives, and then all of the functions can be pure and mathematical and lazy and, and yeah. asynchronous. So if that's the logical conclusion of everything is a hash, and doesn't that sort of violate Rich's original intent of of complexing things? I mean, doesn't that complex everything? It definitely complex the data, right? I mean, that mm -hmm. you always have you always have these structures that you have to keep track of, and and like Josh says, that is mutable. Mm -hmm. so, so I am going somewhere with this line of questioning, which is that, uh, to call back to, to Michael's blog post, um, talking about actors, the, the hybridity, it sounds like what we're really after in both of these is trying to get establish a bounded context, trying to, you know, basically like referential transparency gives you a boundary to your context. You, you know, there's no side effects down below this level. And mm -hmm. so you're safe. You can talk to that safely and you can distribute yourself and, and, and do that. Um, having a God object seems like it, it's it's basically expand, expand, expanding the your context boundary to the whole system, and that seems like a bad idea. Well, the the the, the problem with God objects isn't necessarily that they have a lot of data in them, but that they have a lot of behavior in them. Mm -hmm. And well, and, and that there's and that they're the whole system, right? There's there's, there's synchronous <coughs> representations of the entire system. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah. Go ahead. It's very funny about this because it's like in, in object orientation, there is this sense of like I don't need to know what's happening beyond this boundary in order to go and do the things I need to do. 
-hmm. And the same thing can be emulated in functional systems also, but it seems like people don't seem to mind having data which is more public in functional systems as long as it's immutable. And uh, I don't know, it seems like there's two aspects to this. One is going in and saying, look, I understand the boundary of side effects within this particular area uh, versus I understand the boundary of what I need to know in this certain area. Um, it feels like those are two separate things, and that object orientation and functional handle them in two different ways. Yeah. You know? Can you talk more about that? Yeah. Okay. So, like, um, well, okay. So, imagine you have some big uh, immutable data structure that you're using, and you're, you know, you're working a language like Clojure, where you can go ahead and say, look, this is immutable, but I'm basically making my variants off of it and stuff like that through, uh, you know, construction. Mm -hmm. um, it's like that structure may be globally known, but the thing is, you also know that locally, you're not going to be doing anything which is going to alter the um, larger data structure outside of you. Um, you do need to be aware of the complexity of that data structure in order to go and sort of work with it. Um, it seems like it's just very separate in object orientation. You have the thing where it's like, okay, here's an API, and beyond that API, I don't need to know what's going on in, inside of it. I don't really need to know the internal data structures that are being used or anything along those lines. That's a style that you can use in functional programming, you know, um, naturally. Um, but it's um, it's a bit different. I guess the difference between information hiding and um, and uh, God. I guess what could we call it for functional programming? I guess we could call it um, um, effect hiding. <laughs> okay. Wow. Well, no, but wow. Just, so so one context boundary is on your inputs, and one is on the outputs. And it's like functional programming protects you against the outputs, and object oriented protects you against the inputs. I guess, yeah. And they both have their pants down on the other end. <laughs> yes, fair. <laughs> And you know, that's the thing that really gets me about all this is that I don't, I don't think that, I think some people will go and basically say, ah, oh, you know, the day of object orientation is over and, and functional is the way things are. I think that's really just a, a pipe dream or just uh, people hyping things up. Um, my feeling is that both of them are going to find their place, but we don't know where the places are going to be yet. We don't really know when we're going to be able to best effectively use object orientation in design or, a func or functional design. And we don't really know how to go and give uh, good advice about that. I've been kind of hoping that the Scala community might be able to go and sort of um, give us something more in that direction. Or F-sharp. You know, when you have a hybrid language like that and uh, people are just, you know, trying out various different things, there ought to be some patterns emerging from that about how to use these, uh, these different paradigms together. So, so, so that, that's interesting. I, I, that, that perspective is, uh, I think, counter to my own in, mm. in many ways. The, I, I, I look at hybrid languages and I usually cringe. <laughs> yeah, well, I do too, <laughs> you know, so just in fairness. But, um, okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, good. Good to know you're sane. The, uh, but, uh, <laughs> good to know, uh, So, so I look at uh, I look at languages like Scala uh, through the um, through the you know the uh, I don't know what the other color of rose is for glasses. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the poop um, colored glasses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so basically, my, my experience with the uh, common Lisp object system uh, mm -hmm. way back when, uh, which is you know, a, a very rich and fl and flexible object oriented system built on top of a functional system, mm -hmm. and the the nature of software that was built with that was. Um, I don't want to. I don't want to get hyperbolic and say that it was uh, unparalleled in its complexity, but it was. <laughs> it was. It was pretty bad. Mm -hmm. the, and the it, it wasn't just like this is a mess. It was that if you tried to call a function, you literally had no idea what it would do. Mm -hmm. it's, you know, the, yeah, there was so so many the weird things. Dispatch thing? Mm -hmm. The whole multiple dispatch thing? Yeah, yeah, multi-methods and multiple That's inheritance good. and, and generic good. functions getting in there. You just don't really know what's going to happen. So... <laughs> So I, I looked at that and I got I got pretty um, pretty flustered trying to sort my way around around systems there and 
and uh, really developed an aversion to mixing uh, mixing that kind of complexity and with with object orientation. Object orientation at its at its foundation is incredibly simple. Mm -hmm. the, you know, you, you send a message to an object, and the object does something in response. And yep. the, you know, what we call object oriented programming has some some very standard ways of reducing complexity by eliminating duplication. And you know, so we have classes and inheritance mm. that do the things that you do all the time, uh, you know, very quickly and efficiently. Uh, and, and that's great. But you know, when you try and add more flexibility to the system, you just make it worse most of the time. The, well, it sounds like that's less an indictment of um, mixing OO and functional as much as uh, just going meta with an object orientation. Is that fair? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I think so because you can make a you can make similarly evil system in in Ruby by with a poor application of mixins and, oh, yeah, and method missing yeah. and stuff like that, right? Yeah, and I think the, the thing that's funny about this though is that you can do all those things, and it's like we have the power to do those things in these very rich environments. Um, but it still comes down to taste, individual developer taste and stuff like that, saying, look, you know, if, uh, if I'm approaching the system as an outsider, what do I need to know to be able to use it? And uh, how do I apply the principle of least surprise in order to let people do what they need to do with it? Mm -hmm. And um, if you have to use some magic behind the scenes in order to make that sort of thing happen, that's fine. You hope that people don't really uh, have to get mired in the magic in order to go and do their work. Um, so I feel almost like that's, that criticism is it's more to how people use these technologies as opposed to the intrinsic nature of the technologies. Yeah, yeah. You know it's, sure. It's, but, metaprogramming right. doesn't kill people. Metaprogrammers kill people. Yeah. But having said, <laughs> that, I, having said that, I do have apprehension about the whole mixing of object orientation and functional programming. Um, it's particularly in a language like Scala where you basically have strong typing. It's like it just feels like there's some fundamental incompatibility between um, OO subtyping and the parametric polymorphism that we have in like, you know, um, functional programming. Yeah, um, yeah, so and I, they just feel like they don't quite, they don't both, together they don't cover everything. And it's like when you do something on one side, it forces you to do something on the other side. And it's like, you know, like a weird interleaved pattern. Mm -hmm. And you see that with some of the complexity that kind of comes out in Scala, you know. Um, so I, I feel like, yeah, you can use these things effectively, but it's scary, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I, yeah. And I, I, I've been feeling that way for a while too. If you, yeah. if Ruby is, um, <clears throat> Ruby is an interesting environment to program in because some of it is, is well designed from, um, from an object oriented perspective and some of it is a lot more functional and, mm -hmm. and, and then there's places where those models, uh, I think mesh pretty well if you, if you uh, look at the enumerable API, mm -hmm. I think that that's essentially functional programming. Yep. <laughs> but, <laughs> cool. but it's it's um, the scope of it is so restricted that it doesn't interfere with doing the object orientation. Mm -hmm. But it, but if you look at, at one of these systems where uh, you know in functional systems they they like to use uh, sort of uniform data structures a lot. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I got a, an array of stuff. I got a list of stuff. I have a hash. And mm -hmm. as long as you know about those common data structures and are okay dealing with things at the um at the what is it the connescence of naming level? Mm -hmm. uh, where okay, great. You know, or yeah, you know, it's either connescence of naming or connescence of position to make yeah, effective use right. of these of the of these common data structures, then you have a lot of flexibility in how you structure your functions. 
Mm-hmm. And you know, object orientation, you do it the other way around. You build objects where you, you know, they're very specialized in, in how they operate. So that's different from these common data structures. Yeah. The, and if you're, if you're trying to use APIs or you know, libraries or gems or whatever in Ruby, that, uh, that one of them is built along the strongly object-oriented design direction and the other one is doing the functional thing, it can be very hard to mix those. Mm-hmm. You know, what, one of them you yeah. want to pass in an object, the other one you want to pass in a lambda. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, and I think that's the thing which is I don't know that we're ever going to solve this. I kind of hope we learn more because to me it's just terribly interesting. But it's like there is that thing of like, um, how do you decide which technology to use in which particular circumstance? Is it just style? You know, how much of it is capricious, and how much of it can really be um, something that we arrive at based upon our understanding of particular problems? And say, yes, for this problem, this is a natural fit. We should be using a more functional style um, for this particular way of structuring the system. You know, this particular type of system. Is it better to do it this way or that way? Um, I don't know. I, to me, I'm kind of excited because I think it's really an interesting area. Um, I do have to say, though, it's like with languages like Scala and F Sharp, I was scared when I first saw them, and I guess I still am in a way because. I still remember the C++ days where it's kind of like, you know, here we had a language which was object-oriented but was designed to go and basically sort of like hijack all the C code in the world, right? Yeah. And you have lots of people who basically only knew procedural programming and they have all this object stuff that they could go and work with. And it feels to me that the mix of object orientation and functional within the same language has uh, an even higher potential for um, strangeness, you know, or, uh, mm-hmm. or uh, misuse that could lead to, lead to poor maintainability if uh, mm-hmm. people, you know, make serious mistakes. And I, I think we're still in that phase where that's possible. You know, sure. Is, is that mean, a power okay. safety? Is that a power versus safety trade-off, though? Where it's we've got the power to do it right. We just we're just not smart enough to do it yet. Well, yeah, I, yeah. I, I think somewhat. But but there's you know one of my favorite analogies is a, a car with four wheel independent steering isn't <laughs> more effective in any way. <laughs> It's yeah. you know it's not more powerful. It's definitely not safer. The one thing you can do is you can spin around in place, <laughs> and that's not a very useful thing to do with the car. But it is freaking awesome. Yeah. Wait. What? <laughs> yeah. But you know it, it's it's funny because this stuff does, does evolve over time. I mean, it's like I still remember when everybody thought that deep inheritance hierarchies were a pretty decent idea, you know, and you could use <laughs> yeah. O to model the world and stuff along those lines. And it's funny that we've seen now that basically practically nobody offers uh, straight multiple inheritance anymore in an OL language. It's just considered or, you know, just a poor idea. Um, and it happens very slowly, you know, but I think, um, yeah, with a bit of time, this will settle out, you know. Hey, hey Michael, have, have you spent any time working with the self language? No, you know, I've read about it and I found it utterly fascinating, um, but I never really had an instance to play with. It, it, I, got to, I got to play with self. I, I never... <laughs> Yeah, yeah I, I never used self for anything uh, really significant, but I did play around with it a lot. And yeah. it, I, I view it as the scheme of object-oriented programming. Yeah, no, it's funny. I used to joke with people and say, look, it seems like if you try to go and basically make a language as minimal as possible, um, you're either going to end up with Lisp or, um, or uh, self, it seems. It's just like taking a couple of – those are two languages which take some core ideas and just kind of carry them to the absolute extreme, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Scheme, I, I yeah, when I was at a- Apple, I, I kibitzed in on um, the project for for the language that eventually became Dylan, mm-hmm. and the one of the thing the exercises we did was we looked at some of the foundational technologies, and we did a comparison of of scheme and self, and yeah. broke it down into what are all the fundamental abstractions in the languages. And it turned mm-hmm. out that scheme and self 
had exactly the same level of complexity. They had the same number of fundamental abstractions. They had the same. It, it was just when when you got down to the bottom, they were they were essentially the same thing, just you know, in different orientations. Were they the and, same things or just the same number? Where like one uses objects, one uses verbs, and there's they, a, they were they were essentially the the same thing. Okay, so they weren't just Turing equivalent using the same number of tokens. No, no, but it it was like you know both languages had the concept of a local variable in an execution context. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's yeah, it's kind of interesting. I, but but the thing that's amazing about self is they were able to take all of this object stuff, and and in a in a very magical way turn it into the those equivalents. So think local variables in a in an execution context were defined as slots of the context object. Mm -hmm. and, and you know, and a slot is just another name for an instance variable in self. Yeah. And. That, and that uh, the the scoping, you know, the lexical scoping and and dynamic scoping that you can see in Scheme, is mm -hmm. done with um, object delegation in the self model. So one context, one execution context um, inherits uh, from the enclosing execution context. So if I, you know, if I you know make a call on something in my, it, you know, if I if I'm in a lexical scope and I make a, a call to a That's local variable, chain, right? yeah, yeah, and, and it's and yeah. it's not there. It'll it'll delegate to its enclosing lexical scope and f go find it there. So it's it's beautiful how simple the language is, and it and it gave me a real appreciation for. Uh, you know that that at their roots, the model of computation is very similar. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like um, it's a, the various different flavors of geometry, right? Like um, mm -hmm. Euclidean, non-Euclidean, and stuff like that. You have a core set of axioms, and it's kind of like if you tweak one or another, you get one one direction or the other, get the other. I guess. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, so are you saying that that uh, object-oriented programming is warped? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, I'll tell you though, it really is very striking to me that, you know, I, I've been involved in object orientation for years and I've thought it a very powerful way of structuring uh, solutions, but I feel like personally I missed a lot of the, um, I missed the fact that a lot of what we introduce is accidental complexity, I think. The more I reflect on it now, I notice that there's a lot of accidental complexity that, that comes up in object orientation that doesn't need to be there. Mm -hmm. um, it's, a, it's a strange thing. I don't know. It's a... I think it's a matter of perception and, um, yeah, things changing in the industry. It's, it's, uh, I remember, I don't know, just, uh, I'm very curious about that. Just, <laughs> it's very strange. Mm -hmm. So okay. can, you, uh, can you talk more about how that accidental complexity gets introduced? I mean, is it, is it how we model things and think about things? Is that kind of where we're going? I or? think so. I, I know that from my perspective, at least, um, I was very strongly into the notion of decoupling things as much as possible. And it seems like object orientation offers us a lot of avenues to do that sort of thing. Um, but it does seem like you can go and end up having lots of spurious abstractions, which aren't really necessary in the long term, that sometimes more functional solutions can go and give you, mm -hmm. even though they may not um, uh, be as easy to mutate under change, they chances are they aren't going to change all that much, so it's okay to use functional stuff in those areas. I okay, so, so, so I, I, have a, I have a probing question about that. Sure. <laughs> okay, so... Uh, you know, you're, you're saying how Alan Kay talked about objects as like cells in a biological organism, and yeah. one oh, of the oh, can I can I use a great quote from there? I loved one of the quotes in the article. Yeah, hmm. it's uh, in your article. You said the nice thing about object structure is that it de-emphasizes the players and maximizes the play. Yeah, and that's um, that's something that it's a paraphrase of something that Alan Kay said. He basically said that with object orientation, messages are the more important thing. Yeah, yeah, that's it's it's absolutely true. Yes. The the um, so one of the things he talked about you know, with the with the cell analogy is that if you if you look at 
the metabolic operation of a cell. It spends about 90% of its metabolic energy keeping the outside out and the inside in. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, it, and, and the rest of what it does is just side effects. Like, okay, I'm generating a protein or <laughs> yeah. you know, whatever. <laughs> you know, mostly it's about, okay, the outside is out and the inside is in. And, oh, I need some glucose molecules so that I can operate. Or you know some iron to make hemoglobin or whatever it needs, uh, so it's pretty easy when you're thinking about an object to say, okay, the cell membrane are you know it's uh, you know here's my external API that I've designed yeah. and and these are the places where I need to enforce my um, my assumptions about what my data values are going to be and sequencing of operations, what have you. Mm -hmm. The th the thing that I want to know is. Yeah, I've never been able to figure out what's the right place to put that sort of enforcement in a functional system. So what's the functional programming equivalent of the cell membrane? We know what it is in the object system. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's kind of funny because it seems like people have different answers for that sort of thing. I know in Scala they basically try to make modules into objects. Um, in Haskell you've got modules in essence where you're able to go and sort of like say, look, here's a, here's a public API. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I don't think there's any one fixed answer. I think every language arrives at that in a different way. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's funny. I think if you look at functional programming at its core, it's not going to have an answer about encapsulation that way. That's my feeling, and I, it's hard to back that up. But I, I, uh, I guess do, that's, do they well, view so it as the referential transparency? Doesn't that help try to cover that? Well, it, it tells you basically that this thing is always going to do the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. And so, in essence, it's like I guess the main thing that we worry about with object orientation, which is kind of like, okay, when I change this, what else changes in the system? Mm -hmm. uh, that question is answered in functional programming when you have referential transparency. It's like, okay, yeah, nothing you do over here is going to affect that over there, except through this well-defined interface. Mm -hmm. um, so, I don't know. I, I apologize for being vague here. I just... Um, <laughs> it's okay. We're talking about functional stuff. Yeah, yeah it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, no, I don't know. It's... Uh, okay. Yeah, okay. So, so, so well, you're you, going to get so much hate mail from the functional guys. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to it, i got to say. <laughs> I'm in a feisty mood this week. Yeah. Uh, okay, so so in... Um, so we all know that uh, that lovely, uh, you know, Bon Mott, it's, it's turtles all the way down. Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, so I'm, I'm curious, what is it interesting to talk about what are the turtles for objects and for functions? Yeah, I think it's fair. You know, the thing is that my, my experience isn't wide in functional programming, but the thing that I do notice is that it seems like it's um, some systems I've seen is kind of DSL-ish in a way. It's kind of like you are taking these atomic bits, combining them in such a way to go and make something which people can use to create their own language to go and solve problems, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so it reminds me of something um, something I saw ages ago, which is like, yeah, you're just basically making the pieces and then people, letting people combine the pieces to go and solve the problems that they want to solve, right? So in terms of turtles all the way down, I guess that has that kind of feel. Whereas it feels like an object orientation, um, I think we gave up on reuse in the small a long time ago with object orientation. Really? And we used in the large for like, you know, frameworks and stuff along those lines. Um, what what but, do you mean by reuse in the small? Well, it seemed like in the early days of object orientation, there was this notion that you could make these little individual classes that people could reuse in various different contexts. And of course, there are things like that, like uh, dates and money objects and stuff like that. Um, but it seems like this, the, um, the tendency in object orientation has been to go and sort of like make frameworky things that are the elements of reuse more than um, uh, individual classes, right? It's kind of hard to go and say, ah, I just bring in this class and I do things, right? Uh, you bring in a, a whole set of classes to do things. 
Yeah, and, yeah, and, I, I, definitely. The the whole industry made a move away from protocols to patterns. Yeah, and and patterns are not really reusable in the same way that protocols are. So yeah. should I? Do we need a definition here? <laughs> sure, yeah, go for it. Absolutely. It's been a long time since we did a definition. So a protocol. It, you know, it, you know, people I think are familiar with internet protocols. It's basically a set of, of a set of rules for uh, how to com communicate between two entities. And in object-oriented programming, a protocol is the same thing. It's a set of rules for how you communicate with an object or between two objects. And uh, you know, if you look at uh, something like the enumerable mix-in in Ruby, that defines a protocol that says, okay, great, if you put an enumerable, if you have an enumerable, here's the, th the operations that you can invoke on that object and what you should expect to get back mm -hmm. and maybe what it will call back to you. So a protocol is essentially an API mm -hmm. that an object has published. I kind of feel like uh, reuse in the small was the baby we threw out when we threw out the multiple inheritance bathwater mm -hmm. or or C++ templates, right? I mean, the, the problem is, is that you throw, you bring in these mix-ins and they start to interact with each other. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes in unexpected ways, you have to understand the mix-ins. If you, if you bring in enumerable, that's going to do some things to, to your object. And if you bring in something else that, you know, monkeys with your each or with a spaceship operator, um, that's going to, that's going to have, that's going to fight with the, the enumerable mix-in. Mm -hmm. And in Java, they just threw up their arms and said, screw it, you can't do it. No mix-ins, you're going to have to write an interface. And anytime you want to use this interface, even though the interface does the same exact thing everywhere, you <laughs> still have to implement it the same way over and over and over. And C++ solved that with templates. Um, mm. Ruby solves it with mix-ins, and Java's just dumb. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and Smalltalk did it with uh, you know, just single inheritance and a lot of duplication. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sounds like the Java solution. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but but the the but I think you do have t uh, turtles in a, you know in an object oriented system you can define it it's all objects and messages and mm -hmm. you can even define like inheritance or delegation that way mm -hmm. that you know you could break it down to okay and I, I'm an object I just got a message and it has some parameters or some arguments and oh I don't I don't actually have the method for for handling that message I'm gonna take that and I'm going to pass that message to some other object, you know, my super object and mm -hmm. have that, you know, delegate the, uh, the message over there. So you, you can model the operation of delegation in terms of message passing. Yeah. And that's the thing that's kind of funny to me because it seems like an object orientation is like if you're mixing and matching things. It's kind, of, it's kind of like you're doing a lot of patching sometimes, like a lot of adapter pattern and that sort of mm -hmm. stuff. And it feels like with um, the functional stuff, I haven't seen much of that, but I may not be experienced enough to know. You know, it's, it's yeah. like you're, you're taking the API as given. You're taking the signatures of these particular functions as given, and using them, choosing them to use them as a particular at a particular level in your program mm -hmm. without exposing them out all that much. Right. Yeah. Well, well, the the um, you know, the, you know, the, there's a saying that um, at some point a quantity a difference in quantity becomes a difference in quality, or a quantitative difference becomes a qualitative difference. Mm -hmm. You know, if you know, if you're making ten dollars an hour and you get a raise to make eleven dollars an hour. That's that's a, not a really a qualitative difference, but if you get a raise and you're making a hundred dollars an hour, that's a real qualitative difference. Yeah. And you know you, you've now you're now making an order of magnitude more. You can afford a lot more stuff. So that in in an object-oriented system where you know you're looking at it that there are turtles all the way down, and even fundamental operations like delegation can be modeled as message passing among objects. Mm -hmm. If you apply some magic and say, okay, there's there's a couple operations in the system that are infinitely fast or close to it. Mm -hmm. 
then then you start using those operations for everything that's performance critical, mm-hmm. and and that's what they did with the original v- VMs, you know, the original OOP implementations. They they took those operations and made them blindingly fast, mm-hmm. yeah. and and th- so you you get things like inheritance and class hierarchies and and uh, you know that that stuff became used a lot, but there was no fast operation for doing something like multiple inheritance. So yeah. that didn't get used very much modeling the system. Mm-hmm. And, and it and it, I think it's uh, it's kind of telling. There was this one primitive operation that got used in Smalltalk a lot called Bitblit, which was the graphics primitive. Yeah. And uh, everybody who worked on Smalltalk in the 80s, it was like the joke was, oh, I can't do this. What do I do? Oh, just use Bitblit. It, it was basically <laughs> an incredibly fast computational engine. And yeah. you could implement Conway's game of life by doing uh, Bitmask yeah. uh, logical operations. That was just awesome. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I've seen uh, image rotators done by recursively rotating image or uh, translating images around. And that, I, I can't do a good job of describing that here. Maybe I'll find something for the pics for a link for that algorithm. Anyway, the, the, so that operation was so blindingly fast doing mm-hmm. Biplet that it perverted the nature of how people design software. Yeah, and, yeah. and people people would design, design software so that you could take advantage of Biplet being so fast. Yeah, and, and so. Uh, and you know, me- uh, method lookup is one of those blindingly fast things in object-oriented systems. It's yeah. it's funny to call it fast because it's actually incredibly slow, but compared to everything else you're doing, it's really fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so what's the what's the equivalent in the functional world of of you know the trick that okay we took this thing that mathematically it's similar to everything else, but we're just going to make it an order of magnitude or three faster. Gosh, I don't know. Doesn't functional almost get that for free though? Just basically by, I mean, the, by the design of itself, because it. I mean, to me, I, I guess I, what I'm saying is that I feel like functional languages are almost more ideal for computers, right? Than than maybe even humans, but but that computers seem to be able to just churn through those functional operations so fast, you know. Well, that's the thing too, because it, it, to me, it's very hard to go and talk anything about performance these days, because there's so many different ways of optimizing. things. Things and stuff along those lines. It seems like certain things are should be relatively easy to optimize using, um, you know, uh, list-based operations, you know, in functional programming languages, maps and reduces and stuff along those lines. But, you know, whether they actually are faster, I don't know. You know, the thing I wonder is like I, th- I like your argument about what's blindingly fast, but I wonder whether it's whether what's blindingly fast as much as what's made easy for the developer. Yeah. You know? Well, uh, okay. There's that uh, old chestnut about how. You can write Lisp in Lisp in like a page of code, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and uh, I, I think that that implementation of Lisp is probably not extremely performant. Yep. Sure. Right. So the, yeah. yeah. So so what are, what's the bit of that that you have to make blindingly fast to have it have it be usable? It's a good question. I guess uh, you know, <laughs> popping the function stack. I guess the call stack or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's got to be something similar. I wanted to do one thing before Chuck cut us off, kind of changing the. Uh, subject a little bit, but but where are the spaces where these two paradigms intersect at a useful level? And the reason I'm asking that is because I did the ICFP contest uh, a couple weeks back, mm-hmm. and um, I, I built an object system to model the problem, and um, basically it was a search through a, a large space, and I had this object tree, you know, where uh, basically, I have some big array that represents the the you know board. It was a game, but 
uh, I have an array that represents the space and then individual objects in each slot in the array that uh, are the you know areas on the board with various information. And so because I had to search through this, I had, I had to move through those positions very quickly and, and switch. And I ended up applying uh, some functional ideas to get some kind of surprising uh, speed out of Ruby. And basically, I made it where uh, my models were immutable. And I overrode Ruby's uh, initialized copy method to make it where I duplicated the array on copy, but I didn't duplicate the, um, the individual objects in the slots. So basically, you, you, know, you have a very large set of space, let's say a million slots. I duplicate that array, which is a fairly fast operation. Just you know, it, it's only pointing to very ad, various addresses. But I leave all those objects alone because they're immutable. They'll be pointed at the same objects in memory, which means I saved Ruby copying a million objects mm -hmm. um, every time I duplicated this thing. And then uh, you know, by because they were immutable, I just return a copy with. Uh, uh, you know, with the usually I need to change one or two objects, uh, mm -hmm. so I end up just changing the one or two I need. But what was interesting to me was I took this very OO system, but by applying a few functional principles to it, I was able to use it uh, for something that was a little bit surprising. I was searching through a very large space in Ruby quickly. You know. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I think that just sort of highlights the, the thing that it really is important to be well-versed in all these different approaches to program construction, you know, and um, you, you never know when a particular idea is going to go and, um, uh, you know, come up, you know, when you are looking at a problem. And the only way those ideas come up is if you have um, experience in those different areas. Yeah. So I think it's, yeah, it's really powerful. I don't, I don't know what the answer is with this stuff as far as like, uh, you know, where's the best place to use these things. But um, I don't know. And I'm not sure we'll ever get to that, but I find it really fascinating to think about. You know? Awesome. Well, I'm going to take this opportunity to uh, cut things off and, and get to the picks unless there's anything that you guys have a burning desire to talk about that we haven't covered. I just want to say thanks to Michael for an awesome conversation. It was really like thought provoking. Yes, yes. I know I'm going to have to go back and listen to it when I'm awake. <laughs> well, thank you very much. No, it's been very fun. This is a very interesting topic to me, and it's great to you know converse with people that have a shared interest in it. You know, awesome. Well, let let's do the picks. Um, David, do you want to start us off? Sure. Um, I want to start off. Uh, this is kind of funny. Um, my, this this pick basically proves that I can be bought. Um, so a couple days ago, I woke up and there was an email in my inbox that says your purchase from nolrappin.com is complete. And I went, what? Um, so <laughs> I like immediately went into like fraud alert mode, um, like tracking that. On, and I, I know Noel Rappin is stealing your identity. Yeah, or someone else has stolen my money to buy something from Noel, which actually a pretty good <laughs> use of the money. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, so you know, like I've met Noel, so I I didn't feel too threatened just by you know sending him an email. <laughs> saying um did i just purchase something from you did did i did i pre-order something from you and forgot that i did it because that sounds like something i would do and he wrote back to me and he said no i just sent you a free copy of my book and or my of uh, his two books that are out and um there was no way to personalize the message so sorry for any undue alarm um, <laughs> actually dave i forgot to tell you i'm providing a life-size null to each of the rogues right on cool. right on so it's but it's a duplicate right so so it's referentially transparent yeah but it's um, immutable yeah it, it's okay it's so lazy it'll never do anything <laughs> <laughs> Which just goes Ouch. to show that the rogue's not, we can be bought, but you may not be satisfied with your purchase. <laughs> um, so the book that Noel sent me, and uh, 
I was kind of thinking about picking this book and then uh, so Avdi's been listening in on the call but he's been uh, anxiously awaiting the arrival of his next child and so like like any minute now so he he logged into the pre-call just to say somebody please tell me that you're picking uh, Noel Rappin's book and so I'm picking Noel Rappin's book which is actually two books um, which is uh, Mastering Space and Time with JavaScript now if you guys have heard me on the show you know I hate JavaScript I think it's a crappy language I think it's a horrible environment I think everything about it is bad and um, Noel's except, book except some of the people who use it. Uh, yeah. Um, and now, except for at least two books uh, written about it, because this book makes me want to go play with JavaScript. Um, I'm looking looking at this, and it's the book one, you jump in and you start in. You, he starts right in with Jasmine, uh, which is kind of the RSpec flavor for JavaScript. And um, book two is uh, all about object oriented, or well, or at least objects anyway. And um, they're really, really exciting. I've only had it for two days, so I've just kind of flipped through it, and I'm like, "Ooh, this is this has got me itching to play with this." So I'm kind of kind of eager and kind of interested. Um, I do have a second pick, uh, something that uh, I thought of because of what Josh mentioned about Bitblit and Con and Conway's Game of Life, and that is uh, a YouTube video that I'm posting here. It's Conway's Game of Life written in one line of APL, which is yeah. an extremely functional language, um, and uh, he uses he basically establishes a matrix. And then shifts that matrix up and over, and then up, and he shifts it around to all eight adjacent positions, like you would do with a bit blit to bit mask it off. Um, and then he sums up the matrix to determine, you know, you know, taking out the the sums to determine which cells live on to the next thing. Um, APL uses all kinds of Unicode characters, so it's kind of hard to follow the code. But watching the output on the screen is terrifying because, yeah, he he ends up writing a full blown copy of life. It's very very cool. So those are my picks. That that, that sounds awesome. The uh, and if, in case people aren't familiar with APL, I'll just say that it's the kind of language you can write a prime number sieve in what five characters. Yeah. <laughs> so that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, and only only one of them are in the Roman alphabet. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, James, what are your picks? Uh, so I'm basically obsessed with the Raspberry Pi right now. <laughs> I don't know if you guys have uh, seen this, but it's a little basically uh, circuit board uh, Arduino kind of thing, uh, except it's like a full Linux ARM computer thing. Uh, 700 megahertz processor. It's got 256 uh, RAM on it. It's got HDMI out, so you can just plug it into your HDTV, uh, USB on it, Ethernet, and then it's got uh, general purpose I.O., GPIO. So basically you can you know connect it up to circuit boards or, or any other uh, Arduino-like uh, task you want to do. And there's just uh, so much awesome stuff uh, you can do with this thing. Uh, and they're, they're building it so that uh, to use in education, uh, really, teaching people about computers and stuff like that, which I think is awesome, but it's just extremely hackable, uh, fun to play with. I mean, you can see videos on their site, which I'll put a link in the show notes to people like doing voice activated mechanical arms or doing uh, automatic translation or um, God, just anything. Some people are using it as a media center because it actually turns out to have a fast enough processor to stream HD, and it's got the HDMI built in. So uh, just totally fun, very hackable piece of, uh, of uh, hardware. And if you want to see a lot of good uses for it, um, Hydegroove, a uh, great Rails consultancy, has these uh, tech talks they do every once in a while. And um, they had one recently uh, on the Raspberry Pi, and that was where I found out about it. So 
uh, he shows you, uh, you know, what it is and what it can do and, and the various things people have used it for. Uh, it's pretty cool stuff. So check out that talk and uh, it's my picks. Awesome. Um, Josh, what are your picks? Okay. Uh, my first pick is for the T gem, like the letter T as in Tanqueray <laughs> or Twitter. Uh, the, so this is the uh, Twitter command line power tools gem and uh, comes to us from Eric Michaels over. And he, uh, so this, this is just like, if you want to dump a list of all your followers or compare, uh, the people you're following to the people who follow you or, you know, uh, make posts from the command line, it's, it's really good for all that stuff. And, and it, uh, because it uses the API rather than the UI, it's, uh, it's more effective at searching for old, for old tweets. So it's useful just for that. Thank God. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. W- w- did that actually solve the problem that we had with the uh, with the golf game? I don't know. I, I I don't know if anybody's tried it yet. But okay. Okay. Yeah, searching <laughs> on Twitter is oh my god. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of useless. Okay. So, uh, so that's one pick. And then my other pick is uh, I think this might be the first JavaScript pick that I've done on Ruby Rogues. There's a there's a, a script that I used to put together a, a web page recently called. Um, Pitch Deck, and there, there was a company called Dress Rush. They're a startup. They recently pivoted, and they're now Tailored.com instead of DressRush.com. Dress, but Dress Rush put together this amazing web page that was a pitch deck. Rather than sending around some you know multi-megabyte pitch deck to all their investors, they just put up investors.dressrush.com, and uh, you'd go there, and it was uh, it was um, a pretty cool page. That uh, you know, we would scroll and it would uh, it would snap to page boundaries and 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 I've seen a lot of pages done like this uh, recently, and but they open sourced their JavaScript for it and it's it's not a terrible amount of code. I I can even understand my way through it, <laughs> even though it's JavaScript. But it, it's nice. So there's um, I'll put up a, a link to um, some of the resources on that. But I was able to use it very quickly to put together a page that. Um, that you know has some real slickness to it. I think um, on the on the hiring episode, I mentioned uh, whoispolyting.com and you know like the nice uh, the nice page that the product marketing designer guy put together as his resume. And he did something very similar to this. And I don't know if he used the same the same script or not, but uh, I found it really easy to use. So if you want to have a have a page like that, it's also um, uh, so my third pick is uh, for simple.com. And otherwise, formerly known as Bank Simple, I think Twitter they're uh, Simplify, and uh, they're an online bank. And they so I've been using them for the last week or two, and it's just it's uh, they have a great website that's pretty much like Mint for your for your account with them, and you know a really nice iPhone app. And they they just rolled out a couple weeks ago, so they're still ramping things up. And they're they're going through an invitation list to get people in the system, and there and there's still some features that they need, like being able to make deposits with the phone on the or with the camera on the iPhone, which should be coming soon. But it's a it's a pretty nice uh, alternative to a checking account with somebody like Chase or Wells Fargo. Huh. So, but the, but uh, but the, it, it's nice that it's uh, basically online banking built by people who understand usability. I.e. not PayPal. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, it's the opposite of PayPal. <laughs> so, um, okay, so I think that's enough picks for me today. Awesome. All right, well, um, I guess it's my turn. Um, so one of the things that I've been using a bit lately to track um, clients and uh, potential clients is Salesforce. 
Um, I decided to just go with kind of the big dog in the arena, and um, I've actually been pretty happy with the way that it all works. Um, I was looking for a CRM. I had tried high-rise before, and it just didn't seem to really work for me. Um, and so, you know, I, I decided to try some of these other ones, and I got into Salesforce. They gave me a free trial for a couple of weeks, and uh, it, it just really works well with my uh, um, with the way that I manage things. And so been really, really nice. Um, it also fit in with um, my other pick, and that is a book that we reviewed on the Ruby Freelancer show. It's called Get Clients Now, um, and it's by CJ Hayden. If, if you want some information about it, we actually uh, did an interview with her for the book club on that podcast, and uh, there's a lot of great information there, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, but uh, yeah, um, it's it's a terrific book, and if you're a freelancer or trying to um, build a brand, then this is a, a really great way of doing it. It's geared more toward um, people who provide services as opposed to people that sell products, but I'm pretty sure that you could adapt it pretty easily to that um, just with some of the techniques and things that, that you would use to build a community around a product instead of around a, you know, a, a client base around a, a service business. So um, anyway, those are my picks. And uh, we'll let Michael give us some picks, and then we'll wrap the show up. Okay, sounds good. Um, there's a book I'm partway through that I'm kind of, um, I like where it's going. It's a book called Elemental Design Patterns uh, by a guy named um, Jason McSmith. And um, what well, the idea is basically taking a lot of the um, design patterns that we've considered fundamental, like the Gang of Four design patterns and stuff like that, and breaking them down into smaller pieces and trying to go and get a sense of how those things interact. Um, I tend to be, you know, very much a person who likes to go and get back to the, uh, get down to the, uh, the foundations of things. And uh, it seems like he's got a decent categorization scheme for things. And uh, so it's a very interesting read. Um, I guess in the interest of going and sort of like stepping completely outside of software, and I guess you all said that we could do that with picks. I yep. was... Uh, impressed to uh, see a movie the other day at a local art cinema called Beyond the Black Rainbow. And uh, it's very, very interesting. It's um, probably something that uh, our listenership might uh, appreciate also. Um, it was a movie made in 2010 by a guy named Panos Kosmatos. And what it is is it's basically kind of like uh, an amalgamation of like all the 1970s um, strange sci-fi horror movies you've ever seen in your life. Um, it has elements of like 2001, The Demon Seed, uh, Logan's Run, um, uh, gosh, what are the other ones? Just, uh, yeah, just all sorts of films like that. It has a very period feel. And, uh, yeah, just fascinating. There's um, little clips of it up on YouTube. And uh, I just was really struck by it. It's not one of those things you'll see in your local Cineplex, but uh, still a very interesting film. And definitely be getting it when it gets on DVD. So, um, yeah, I guess those are my picks. Awesome. Well, thanks again for coming on the show, Michael. It was a uh, yes, really, you. really good show. A um, few announcements that we have. First of all, you can get the show in iTunes. Um, you can just uh, do a search for Ruby Rogues. Um, in fact, if you search for Ruby, we come up near the top. Um, also, we are reading Growing Object-Oriented Software Guided by Tests, and we will be reviewing the book with the authors on um, August the 22nd. And... Um, I think that's it for, for announcements. Um, you can get the show notes at rubyrogues.com. And uh, just want to thank the rogues again for, for coming. And we will catch you all next week. Chuck, we have one more announcement. Oh, yes? Avdi's baby has not yet been born. <laughs> uh, is, is that a non-announcement then? Okay, sorry. Well, well, I, I, I wonder if his wife is going to pull one of those um, last-minute releases that come out just after the podcast. Yeah, I feel oh, like yeah. I feel like we're I feel like we're like Ruby 5 or something. Oh, like my right. gosh. She's sandbagging. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, so next week we might announce the birth of Abdi's child. Who knows? Very cool. <laughs> Stay tuned for another exciting episode. <laughs>